0: always right radio on am 1420 the answer is your host bob france
4: good morning cleveland home of the smartest fastest strongest toughest and best looking people in america you're listening to the bob france authority on salem 1420 whk this is pete Kersenow substituting for bob france this Tuesday, June 14th, 2020, if you care to participate, and I hope you do, and we'll get into that in a little bit, the number is 9010945, 9010945, or 888-281-111, let me see, what is that, 1110, yes, okay, but 901-0945. please participate. Again, you recognize me, who are regular listeners, that is, as Bob's regular Tuesday at 10 a.m. guest. I'm a lawyer, member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, uh, and in my spare time, I do a lot of other things such as write novels. Spare time is a rumor, as uh, some people say in terms of substitute for sleep. I also, uh, you know, I write political thrillers. In fact, my next one will be coming out. In August, it's already available on pre-order on Amazon. It's called The Devil's Weapons, Historical Fiction. I think you'll have a lot of fun for it. What I'm doing in that novel is actually ghostwriting for W.B. Griffin, the famous oh, about 20 New York Times bestsellers. He unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, and I've been blessed to be asked to uh, continue the franchise and ghostwrite that. You can also find my scribblings on National Review Online, The Federalist, and other right-wing crank sites. Now, you should know that even though I've been writing for the National Review for more than 20 years now, I don't always agree with what they have to say. In fact, I do not at all agree with their Never Trump stance that they took uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm sure a number of you are disgruntled about that. In fact, if you've listened to me over the years, you know I'm vehemently pro-Trump, and he's not without his flaws, but my goodness, Uh, (laughs) the man delivered. But uh, that's one of the topics I'd like to talk to all of you about when we're not talking to our guests. We have a great show lined up. and At the bottom of this hour, 9.35 to be exact, we'll be talking to former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Trump, Dr. Ben Carson, about his new book called Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. Before he was Secretary of HUD, of course, he was the most renowned brain surgeon in the world. Uh, Talk about smart. You know the phrase, it ain't brain surgery? Well, every day was brain surgery for Dr. Ben Carson. Now, that's at the bottom of the hour. The 10 o'clock hour, I'd like to take your calls on one of the biggest political questions of the next two years. And that is, Who are you going to vote for in the GOP presidential primary in 2024? It's not that far away. The campaign will begin in earnest in just about five months, right after the November midterms. Uh, In fact, you can already, already hear some grumbling as to who might run, okay? And speculation has already begun rampant over the last year that, you know, Will Trump run? I mean, he's making all the noises that you would expect. And we know this guy is indefatigable. uh, And we know that he thinks he's the best for the position, wants to come back, vindicate himself, especially over Joe Biden. He he thinks that uh, he was done wrong. If he runs, if he decides to run, if he announces it, will that automatically clear the field so he's unopposed? Now, he's dominant. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Everyone tries to get his endorsement when they're running for some other kind of office. He controls the the Republican Party. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But does that necessarily mean that there won't be somebody out there who decides to also take a shot um, and challenge Trump in the primary if he runs? For example, as we all know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis who has very quickly and justifiably emerged as the favorite of lots of conservatives. Will he run? Even if Trump runs, will he run by himself? If Trump doesn't run, have no idea. But what do you think? If both Trump and DeSantis run in the primary, who will you vote for Trump or DeSantis? Who has the best chance of winning the nomination? And If that person wins the nomination, who has the best chance of beating whomever the Democrats run in 2024? Because it's almost certain that the current occupant of the White House is, uh, if he makes it to the end of this term, it's it's not going to be Biden. So who between Trump and DeSantis has the best pitch? Who has the best chance of winning the presidency if nominated and why? Who are you going to vote for in the primary? Because it does look to be shaping up as a potential Trump versus DeSantis challenge. Now, a lot of the more sophisticated political analysts, of whom I am not, one, um, think that if Trump runs, everyone else clears out. No one wants to go up against that buzzsaw. Uh, But I'm not so sure, and I think many of you are not so sure, based on my discussions with you in the various forums I've been uh, speaking at. We know this much. We, meaning Americans and principally conservatives, can't afford any mistakes when it comes to the nominee. We must win. Conservatism must win in 2024 because the hole that Biden, Democrats, progressives are digging for the country is catastrophic, disastrous. What will the country look like in 2024? At the rate we're going, no one has any idea the depths to which we could plunge. We're looking at a stock market that I remember at one point, I mean, I don't, I'm don't. i not somebody to be watching the stock market on a minute-by-minute basis, but I remember peeking in at one point in the midst of my uh, ordinary duties, and it was down 800, 900 points. This is extraordinary. Now, not all of us are in the stock market. Uh, most of us do have retirement accounts that are invested in some part in the stock market, and every one of us gets hurt by that, regardless of whether or not you're invested directly in the stock market. Everybody feels what happens when the stock market goes down at that level. And we've got all manner of things, record inflation, record gas, everything's a record. Okay. Too bad the Browns aren't setting too many records. But record inflation, record gas prices, record violent crime, record illegal immigration, record drug overdoses. Iran's cheating and on the verge of acquiring a nuclear weapon. And Biden is just furiously trying to reach a deal with them. It's just you can't make this stuff up. It is just the epitome of insanity, and those around him aren't doing anything to restrain this insanity. They're promoting it. We have Russia. We have China. Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. When's the last time we had any significant threat from Al-Qaeda? Or you heard anything about Al-Qaeda? Now they're reconstituting in Afghanistan after that brilliant tactical retreat that they executed last August. We have supply chain issues. Go to the grocery store. I'll tell you personally, uh, every week I go to the grocery store to get sundry items uh, that are heavy that Mrs. Kersenau can't lift. And among those are the dog food for my giant German shepherds. And that's what they are. They're actually called giant German shepherds, a particular breed that was um, developed in Germany and back to, I think it was 1870s or 1880s. And they eat a lot. They consume a lot. And um, I go there for dog food. Last week, go to three different grocery stores, could not find the brand I typically get. But more often, I couldn't find canned dog food. I usually mix it up with some dry dog food for them. It, I'm their little chef because they're such, you know, precious deers. But in any event, can't get staples, baby formula. We have to have an airlift from Europe to give us baby formula. That's un. Forgivable in the United States of America. We're the ones who airlift products to some other destitute country. But we have to have an airlift because we, the biggest, richest country in the history of the world, don't have enough baby formula? This is unforgivable. It goes beyond that. We've got Critical race theory rampant throughout our schools. I know say, Oh, we're not teaching critical race theory. What a bunch of hogwash that is. I don't care what you call it. Maybe it's not the formal title of critical race theory taught at Yale and Harvard's law schools, but the essence of it is critical race. In other words, I'll, I'll change it. They're te- teaching race discrimination and race hatred. Fine. Is that okay for you progressives? I won't call it critical race theory. Race hatred, race division, race discrimination, that's what's being taught in schools. K through, through four, five through eight, we can't add, we can't subtract. We are 38th. Hear that, America? We are 38th in the world when it comes to education. The, the standardized test scores, 38th. Now, At some point, you could say, well, you know, maybe the United States shouldn't be number one or can't be number one in everything. You know, maybe we'd be third or fourth behind, say, developed countries like Japan and Germany in terms of reading and math. Okay, we could see that there'd be a fluctuation any given year. Maybe we are third, fourth instead of number one. But 38th, that's not the Germany's and, and Japan's and any other developed nations, Great Britain. We're talking, if we're 38th, we must be behind certain destitute countries in, say, Central America or Africa or Asia. Unforgivable. But if you ask K-4 to tell you about anything related to comprehensive sex education, they can recite things at the drop of a hat. They're the best in terms of explaining what masturbation is, but adding 2 plus 2? Nah, sorry, that's a little bit, you know, it's a a bridge too far for us. Forty percent of kids in this country are now born to single mothers. The listeners to this show know the devastating impact of that. I'm not going to describe that. I won't go into any great detail about that. We don't have enough time for that. 80% of blacks born to single mothers, but we know what happens. We know the serious disadvantages that children born to single mothers have over similarly situated kids with two parents. Yet, if you listen to our betters, that is, the elites, the people in the administration, the people in academia, no big deal. They shrug their shoulders. In fact, they get upset when we try to exhort people to do something simple that was done for eons, get married before you have kids. Many of you know the data on this, and I'll just kind of summarize it. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at a black kid and a white kid, similarly situated in all respects, if you hold constant every variable, there's absolutely no difference between white kids and black kids when it comes to outcomes, that is, adult outcomes, if you control for one factor alone almost all the differences in terms of income, incarceration rates, the type of education they get, uh, how far they advance in society, and that is whether that child, whether that person was born to a a single mother, raised by a single parent. Having dual parents is a panacea for many of our societal ills, but we have an entire party devoted to glorifying single parenthood. So, the debacle fueled by this socialist work ideology of the Democrats, there are no moderate Democrats in political office anymore. They've purged all of those. All we have is radical leftists. Now, we have coming up, as I said, Ben Carson at the bottom of the hour. Um, and then from 10 to 11... I'd like to take your calls on anything and everything. And in between, we're going to have some time also, even maybe during Ben Carson. And then at uh, the top of the 11 o'clock hour, um, we're going to have Professor Gail Harriet, who has a new book out with respect to racial discrimination in schools. But call at 10, and as I said, we may get a few people in uh, in this hour, and some also at the eleven o'clock hour, at uh, 5. And before we begin in earnest, I'd also like to take the moment to thank the folks at Medina County Friends and Neighbors and Lisa Woods for hosting me once again last Saturday. What a great and smart crowd! We talked about every current issue imaginable. Phenomenal, insightful questions from the audience, and also. Special thanks to Independence High School for having me last night, hosting me last night. Uh, Thanks to Superintendent Ben Hegedish, the Alumni Association, General Bob Wagner, Joan Menzel. Uh, What a great affair that was. I'm enormously honored. And uh, we are going to be going to break right now. But when we come back, happy to take your calls. 935 Ben Carson. You're not going to want to miss that. Good morning Cleveland i now substituting for Bob France on the France Authority and what I'd like to do because I want to get as many calls of yours as possible before we get to Ben Carson I think we only have time for one call before we get to Ben Carson but let's see if we can give it a shot let's go to Gary in Middleburg Heights Gary good morning, there Peter. hi
5: Gary yes, sir good morning hey uh, wanted to talk to you about two things real quickly one I've been a dog trainer for uh, 30 years. Uh, The dog food that you're eating, that you're feeding your dog, would you eat it? Oh, no. Absolutely not. Okay. So what you want to do is get them off the the dog food. Okay. And go to like a a Chinese or Japanese store and pick up, you know, 10 pounds of rice and start cooking your dog rice and boiled chicken. And uh, you can go to Aldi's and get cans of uh, tuna for 65 cents. He doesn't need a lot of meat. And, and uh, you know, you just put the tuna in with the rice and uh, cottage cheese on occasion, lots of eggs. Uh, I mean, you live out in Medina. There's got to be some people selling eggs on the, on the highway. My dog had four eggs this morning. So, uh, only feed it what you would eat it, and, and you'll have a much happier dog. Number two, I was, um, a, uh, delegate for Trump the very first time, a voting delegate the very first time. And, uh, I would not, uh, vote for him again. DeSantis is my man. Uh, Trump made huge, huge blunders in terms of the people he chose. a very bad judge of character. And so, uh, DeSantis is going to, be my man.
4: In terms of policy, <laughs> do you think there's any difference between Trump and DeSantis that you've been able to discern so far?
5: Um, you know, not, not a whole lot, but I, I tell you, I'll tell you what. They're both fairly comparable, but I'm more concerned about judgment and character. And, you know, for example, when uh, he was getting uh, impeached, a guy like you should have been there defending him. And he would have got gotten a lot further, and he would have won his cases. But uh, you know, they, he picks people out of the swamp down there. It's it's insane. That doesn't wash uh, with me anymore. It's Desantis, and so there you have it, Peter.
4: Well, Gary, I appreciate. It. I think um, many people believe that there are really few policy differences between Trump and Desantis; that they hold the same positions on discrete and important policy issues. I think. What people have been looking for is what they perceive is the strength of Trump compared to every other Republican out there, with the possible exception of DeSantis. Every other Republican we've seen in our lifetimes, when push comes to shove, bends to the Democrats or tries to accommodate what they perceive is uh, the zeitgeist in the media, and they're always making compromises. Now, politics is the art of compromise, but when you're a Republican and have been compromising for 60 years, every once in a while you'd like to get a little bit of a win, you know? And what we saw in Trump was a backbone for the first time in my lifetime. And look, there's all reasons why you can criticize Trump. I think what people intrigues people about DeSantis is he has exhibited in his practice, that is, in his governorship of Florida, a similar kind of tenacity to Trump. Uh, he's maybe not as much of a bull in the China shop as Trump, which many people love. We like the fact that he's mixing it up. We love the fact that he's pushing back and he doesn't take any, any uh, bull from the media or, or Democrats, but I repeat myself. And sometimes the psychic satisfaction of that is almost as important as a successful policy initiative. So, uh, Gary, thanks very much for the call because this is what I'm trying to discern. I want to know from the audience, again, we're going to go to Ben Carson in a couple of minutes, and then at the top of the hour, uh, we're going to have just an hour of your phone calls, and I would like to know any manner of things you want to talk about, but especially, especially Trump versus DeSantis, who's your preference and why. When we come back from break, we will go to one of the smartest men in the world, and I'll tell you why, Uh, but he's got a new book. Uh, It's Dr. Ben Carson. He's going to be talking about his new book, The uh, Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. You're not going to want to miss it. And then in the 10 o'clock hour, your phone calls on all manner of things, but specifically Trump versus DeSantis. TJ, hold on for the 10 o'clock hour, and we'll talk about red flag laws and guns.
0: Among the uninformed, always right radio with Bob France on The Answer.
4: Good morning, Cleveland. Pete Kersnow substituting for Bob France and the Bob France Authority. We've got Jonathan, the best engineer in the world, got the best bumper music imaginable. We are blessed and fortunate to have maybe the smartest man in America to be joining us. You all know who he is. Dr. Ben Carson, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Uh, Under President Trump, he was a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination and former director of pediatric pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. He's also the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor in the land, and he holds a paltry 70 honorary doctorate degrees. A great American, but as I said, a bit of an underachiever. Dr. Carson, how are you today? much well. with you. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, I, I do have a small contact with you from a long time ago. It was more than 20 years ago I was chair of the Center for New Black Leadership, and you were kind enough to be our keynote speaker at our annual dinner. And I tell people about this even to this day, probably three or four times a year. You gave a recitation that stuck in the minds of everyone present. There were several hundred people there. It was the most remarkable, spectacular recitation of what happens physiologically, neurologically, when sound hits the tympanic membrane and is processed by the brain. Um, I don't know how the heck you did that. I wish folks could hear that. You went on about this two-minute recitation. It was perfect. It was. Fa- I, I, I just never heard anything like that. I went back home, and I told Mrs. Kirsten, and I, I said, I just saw the smartest man on the face of the earth. It was really amazing.
6: Well, it is pretty amazing what incredible brains we have and what it has to go through uh, for you to do simple things, but you see how incredibly complex it is, and it's the brain that actually makes you who you are. It's not your skin color. It's not the texture of your hair or the shape of your nose, and yet we have so many people trying to convince our young people that the color of your skin is the principal determinant of what happens to your life. What a bunch of garbage.
4: Right, exactly. And is this what prompted you to write your new book, Created Equal? Yes.
6: I saw that we're getting to a point in this country where everything is turning back around to race. And, uh, you know, they're using it as a cudgel to beat people into submission, to make white people feel guilty, to make black people feel like victims and other minorities. And it's just so totally unnecessary, and it's so untrue. But a lot of people, particularly on the left, want you to believe that, you know, America is this horrible, systemically racist place, uh, worst place in the world because we have slavery. I'm not acknowledging the fact that every civilization since the history of man has been around, has had to deal with slavery. There are actually more slaves in the world today than there have ever been when you look at human trafficking, and the number one consumer of that is the United States of America. We don't have to judge up something from a couple hundred years ago. we got major problems going on right now that we need to deal with, and if there is something that's unique about American slavery, it's that we had so many people who were vehemently opposed to it, Yeah, we were willing to fight a civil war, and there's a large portion of our
4: population to get rid of Right, and Thomas Sobe has done yeoman's work over the years, uh, for the last 50 years, reciting just that and the fact that the United States is not unique in terms of slavery, that we currently have slavery, that some of the most horrific instances of slavery actually occurred in the Middle East and continue there. And America, as opposed to, as you just indicated, the 1619 Project, and it appears to be the entire woke enterprise, was not created to preserve slavery. The Revolutionary War was not fought to preserve slavery. And what I'm curious about, Dr. Carson, is you're someone who actually operates on brains. Have you ever seen any differences between a black brain, a brown brain, a white brain, an Asian brain?
6: Absolutely no difference whatsoever. And, uh, you know, some people allow those superficial uh, things to be a big part of them. But uh, let me tell you something interesting about the human brain versus an animal brain. You know, let's say a dog. You put them side by side, they look rather similar, except the dog's brain has a much better developed midbrain. The midbrain is used for reacting animals react much faster than people can like reflexes. But people have these very well-developed frontal lobes where you engage in rational thought processing. We have the ability to extract information from the past, integrate it with information from the present, project it into the future. A year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, we can do complex configurations. And that's the difference. And yet critical race theory have young people act about animals. Just use your midbrain react to the person's physical appearance rather than using your frontal lobes to analyze the content of their
4: character. That is a really interesting way of assessing critical race theory and its approach. It is uh, almost Neanderthal in its approach and. When you, we're talking to Dr. Ben Carson about his book, Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present and Hopeful Future of Race in America, everyone in this audience obviously knows and admires Dr. Carson. But in your early years, Dr. Carson, you lived in Detroit. Now you're the most celebrated brain surgeon in, in the world. You have been a cabinet secretary, but you started in humble beginnings, in an, almost entirely black community, black schools, black church, black neighborhood. Then you moved to Boston, and you were at a school that was mostly white. Tell us about the contrast, the experience that you had when you moved to that school.
6: Well, there was no question. You know, when I moved to a white school environment, the expectations of the teachers were not high. This is the black East. Probably not going to do that well. I don't really have great expectations from. What was interesting was watching the transition of the students. Uh, you know, I was really way behind when we moved from back to the church. was <laughs> all white school there. And, uh, I was by far the worst performing student in the class. And people used to tease me and call me horrible names. and You know, that that was just it. My mother insisted that I was smart, and she was always convinced me. You're much too smart to bring home grades like this. I brought them home anyway. But she was very encouraging, and she made us read books. And that completely transformed my life as I started reading about people of accomplishment and recognized that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. It's not somebody else. It's not to inspire that. I stopped listening to all the naysayers and people saying there are all these obstacles you can't succeed. I said, forget about you guys. And I started to think about what I could do. And within the space of a year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class, (laughs) which upset some of the teachers. But my classmates were fine with it. I mean, they had seen the transition. These 10 kids used to call me dummy were coming to me saying, Benny, 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 how do you work this problem? And I'd say, sit at my youngster while I instruct you. <laughs> I was maybe a little obnoxious. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, they accepted this transition. And I think over the course of time, uh, maybe the teachers began to change as well. And one of the things that I emphasized in the book is that people have a tendency to react based on what their past has been. So, you know, I I give an example of uh, as an intern going into the surgical wards at Johns Hopkins and
3: invariably
6: some nurse would say, Mr. Johnson's not ready to be taken to the OR, assuming that I was an orderly. And, uh, you know, I I would be very nice. I'd say, well, I'm sorry he's not ready. I'm Dr. Carson. I think he made 10, about 18 shades of red. I'd be very nice to them. I had a friend for life. (laughs) 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 that. But, but you know, they were they were reacting not because they were racist, but because the only black man they had ever seen come on the ward with scrubs on was an orderly. So why would they have thought something different? Now, right. if they continue to do it after you've corrected them, that's a different story. But usually that's not the case. And so often, you know, we get bent out of shape um, because of misperceptions. And I think we should always give people the benefit of the doubt and try to educate people. And that's what we need to be doing in our country right now. Yeah.
4: I I couldn't agree with that more. I think a lot of people of a certain age have that kind of experience. Uh, You know, I'm of the age where I was, you know, the first black attorney at a firm, first black partner, so on and so forth. And the experience I had, I'm not as anywhere near at your level of operation But it was similar. You know, you kind of expect people are not racist, but they have certain perceptions based on what they've seen over the course of their lives. And they've never seen, say, you know, a black neurosurgeon before. So it's like, you know, who is this person? And they don't necessarily know whether or not you're going to be able to operate at, no pun intended, operate at the level that is expected of somebody. It's not racism. It's just a manner of human perception and expression When you're confronted with something that's something somewhat novel. Um, and but- things
6: do change because, you know, when I was a kid and a black person came on television in a non servile role, it was a big deal. You called everybody into the living room. <laughs>
4: everybody was right. so excited. You remember and, the show uh, Julia, right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Earl King Wangador now. <laughs> yeah. But nowadays, you have... You know, black CEOs of major corporations, heads of foundations, generals and admirals. We've elected a black president twice with a black vice president. I mean, to say that things haven't dramatically changed just in my lifetime would be a complete denial of reality. Doesn't mean that we've reached nirvana not by any strategic imagination. We still have progress to make. But do we want to build our future on our past failures or on the great progress that's been made?
4: Dr. Carson, what do you think is the effect of this constant negativity from teachers, the educational establishment, that is, uh, Democrats, progressives in general, when they're talking about blacks as if blacks are constantly being repressed and that there's, you know, America is a racist society and you can't achieve. What's the psychological impact on black youth from that kind of dynamic?
6: Well, basically, if you think you're a victim, you are and you begin to act like one, and you begin to perceive things as a victim does. And, you know, I think one of the greatest things my mother ever did was make sure that we didn't become victims. She would say, Benjamin, if you walk into an auditorium full of racists, thinking at white people, you don't have a problem. They have a problem, because they're all kind of cringe and wonder if you're going to sit next to them, whereas you can go with any way you want. So, you know, that kind of, of philosophy was very important in, in my upbringing, not to sort of take on everybody else's philosophy, but instead to, to set your sights on what you needed to do and then to, to go ahead and do it. And I think those of us who have gotten through all that have an obligation to not just keep it to ourselves, but to make sure that other people understand and can benefit from that, too, and they don't have to adopt the victim's mentality.
4: We are talking to Dr. Ben Carson, yes, Dr. Ben Carson, about his new book, Created Equal, the Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. Doctor, you talk about in your book some of the similarities between cancel culture and Jim Crow racism. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
6: Yeah, uh, I was asked about that by a political reporter who was taken aback, that I could say such a thing. And I said, well, think about it. what did both of those things do? Jim Crow racism and cancel culture. They establish one group as a superior group whose opinions are supreme and they suppress another. That's exactly what cancel culture does. And it's really one of the most evil things uh, imaginable. You know, in our Judeo-Christian value system, we are taught to love your neighbor. This other system says, if your neighbor doesn't agree with you, hurt them. Hurt their families. Mm -hmm. Hurt their livelihood. That is nothing but pure, unadulterated evil. And we should call it for what it is, and we should eschew it. You know, it's totally okay to have disagreements. And, in fact, you learn a lot more from people who disagree with you than people who say yes to everything you have to say. And if two people agree about everything, one of them isn't necessary. So, you know, let's, let's celebrate our differences, but we don't have to let those differences be made in panic.
4: Dr. Carson, I want to make sure that we sell some books here. Could you tell the audience... How they can order your book or go and get your book at a bookstore?
6: You can get it uh, pretty much everywhere, including the bookstores. bookstore. Um, I think to all the good people out there it's, uh, on the New York Times bestseller list already, we appreciate that. But, you know, the, the most important thing is that we open people's minds and help them to realize that we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. And we get to choose what kind of country we want to have. We get to choose what kind of future we want to have. We don't have to let that be dictated by a bunch of people who say, don't believe your ears and don't believe your eyes and don't believe your heart. Just listen to us. We'll tell you what you're supposed to think. That's not America.
4: That's not America. Uh, We seem to be getting instructions from our betters all the time, and those instructions – seem to be telling us that America is a racist and awful place. And you have a pretty large section in your book that addresses, among other things, the 1619 Project and critical race theory. And this is an ongoing issue throughout all the curricula of the various states in, in public schools, at least, and also in private schools. We've seen it in private schools right. where we have these woke administrations that are instructing kids that your value is tethered to your skin color and that certain people have a uh, almost indelible stain on them because of their race, and therefore they have to atone from the sins of people who once looked like them in the past. Tell us a little bit about your Which opinion crazy. on
6: that. Well, you know, the, the, the creation of white guilt is part of a, a larger overall scheme. Because if, if you can have a bunch of white people feeling guilty about what's happened in the past, then they're not likely to say anything when you come up with all these crazy ideas like defunding the police and letting dangerous criminals out to terrorize neighborhoods and not having a southern border, Uh, you know, all of which creates enormous chaos in our society and uh, sets us up uh, for a feeling that we need something different. We need to change the system. We don't need to change the system. What we need to do is what all wise people do, and that is learn from our history, learn from the good things, learn from the bad things, and recognize that your history is the basis of your identity and your identity is the basis of your beliefs. So if you strike any part of that chain, then you become relatively easily moved sort of like a a leaf in the wind, just blowing wherever the wind
4: takes you. That, again, is not America. Dr. Carson, um, you are obviously one of the most highly educated men in the world, and you say that education is the great equalizer. Eighty percent of black kids today are born to single-parent households. You were in a single parent household, yet you've achieved pinnacles that people can only dream of. Tell me what, what kind of advice do you give to parents today as to getting their kids to be interested in education, to want, want to better themselves and learn more and more, not just on the, you know, standard topics, but just explore great literature and expand their minds.
6: Well, you know, my situation was probably a little different than most because my mother, who had less than a third grade education, is the wisest person I ever met in my life. Uh, and she totally refused to be a victim and recognized as the domestic cleaning other people's houses. She was a spy. She said, why are these people doing so well? And she concluded that it was because they read a lot of books and they didn't sit around watching TV all day. And she came home and imposed that on me and my brother. We were, of course, a little disgruntled about that. But uh, in today's world, we probably would call social services on it. But uh, it worked. It absolutely was a fantastic thing. And I can't emphasize enough that parents don't have to feel like victims. But remember, there was a a study done by the Brookings Institute some years ago looking at poverty, and it was probably the biggest poverty study that's ever done. They concluded, and they're a left-meaning organization, of course, they concluded there were three things that a person could do that would reduce their likelihood of living in poverty to 2%, and that is, number one, finish high school so important to get that basic educational foundation. Number two, get married. Have that supportive family structure. And number three, wait until you are married to have children. Actually use those frontal lobes to plan your future. That's why we have sophisticated brains. We don't have to just do things and react to things. And, you know, if a parent recognizes that, and knows that it is their responsibility to make those things important in the lives of their children, their children are going to do well. There's no question about it.
4: We're talking to Dr. Ben Carson about his new book, Created Equal the painful past, confusing present, and hopeful future of race in America. Dr. Carson, this has been remarkable. I urge everybody to go to Amazon or whatever outlet they typically go to to purchase your books and buy Created Equal. We have just been talking to one of the finest men America's ever produced, not just because of his accomplishments, because of his wisdom. And I wish we had more time, Dr. Carson. I encourage everybody to go out there and buy everything you've ever produced. And uh, good luck to you, sir. Well,
6: thank you, and thank you for being a patriot.
4: Thank you. This is 1420, the Bob France Authority. Pete Kersenow substituting for Bob France at the top of the hour. After the top of the hour, we're going to be going to your phone calls. I know TJ's holding. We've got people holding Hold on, we're going to be talking about all manner of things, anything that upsets you. But I really do want to get into some of my pet peeves, and you know what those things are. But the big question that I have for all of you is Trump versus DeSantis. Who do you vote for in the primary, presuming each of them runs? Trump versus DeSantis, and why? Pete Kersenow, Bob France Authority, 1420. We'll come back at the other side of the break.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always white radio with Bob France of the answer.
4: Good morning, Cleveland. This is the home of the smartest, fastest, strongest, toughest, and best-looking people in America. This is Pete Kersenow substituting for Bob France on Always Right, WHK 1420. We've got open lines. We were very fortunate yesterday to have, or yesterday, last hour, it seems like yesterday now, we've covered a lot of ground, but the... Incomparable Dr. Ben Carson, who has a new book out. We encourage you to go out and uh, get it when you have an opportunity. It's available on Amazon. And in any event, that was an interesting discussion, but we've got open lines. We've got people holding. We'll get to them in a moment. But for those of you who are not regular listeners, again, Pete Kirstenau, a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I'm a lawyer of Dr. and Indian Chief in my spare time. And one of the things that I wanted to discuss with all of you is you can talk anything you want to. We've got an open line for the next hour, and then the hour after that we're going to be talking to Professor Gail Harriet, who has got an interesting new book on all matters related related to race. Um, but this hour, wide open, open lines. I see they're starting to fill up. We're going to go in order. A couple things. Um Now, I mentioned at the top of last hour that I was uh, very honored to have Independence High School alumni honor me yesterday. Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ben Hegedes, the superintendent, Uh, General Bob Wagner, was out there, alums, and it was phenomenal. It's, uh, I think, imperative for those of us who have something to say, something important to say, to get out into the community. I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to do so, and I think it's important for americans to get out and talk to one another in any kind of gathering whether it's one person or a hundred thousand people and it's important because we are at an inflection point in this country we have been for at least a decade maybe more and things are in a balance right now where we don't know if it's going to go one way or another we thought we had a little bit of a respite under trump he was pushing back but the left is going crazy right now trying to push us over the precipice and i think it's my duty and the duty of anybody who has a ch- chance to go out there and talk about the issues that are confronting us right now to get out there and do so I'm, i am i tell you i um, raised this on saturday with the folks at madonna county uh, mcfan that my frustration and anger at what I perceive is a complete lack of energy, diligence, aggression, and persistence from so many Republican officeholders. Not everybody, but so many in leadership. The Dems have hegemony over our cultural institutions. They are in the media. They are in the schools. They control every aspect of government. And so it's... What they're doing is trying to implement Barack Obama's agenda or his vision of fundamentally transforming America, transforming it into a woke socialist hellhole. And outside of, you know, maybe a Jim Jordan, a Tom Cotton, Chip Roy, Ted Cruz, maybe a few others, but a precious few others, pushing back with sufficient vigor doesn't seem to be on their agenda. It's not enough to simply vote on bills, oppose Democratic bills. Every elected official has a bully pulpit. In other words, he has a virtual microphone he's going to be listened to. And it's, again, not enough to simply go through your ministerial duties. Advocating for the correct positions, advocating for the United States of America and its people is essential. You have to educate the public, rally the public, oppose progressives, their bills, and we have to police every single chance we get all of the infractions that the progressives are pushing on America and especially its kids through the woke agenda we're currently seeing. We have to be infatigable, all hands on deck. So anyway, that's the screed for the moment. I want to get to your calls, and T.J. has been holding since the last century. T.J., how are you?
3: Yeah, hi. It's an honor to speak to you, Peter. Peter, i got two quick points before T.J., I I'm
4: having it. a tough time hearing you. Give me oh. one second. Okay. Go ahead. Are you there?
3: Yes, I'm there. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Uh, I got two quick points uh, before I ask my question. Uh, The first one is I I would love to see Trump president again, but I'm leaning towards DeSantis only because I believe he could attract more independent votes and and Democrat votes, and that's the only reason. My other quick point is I have a large shepherd, too, and we know they like to eat. Uh, I got a tip for you. Instead of the canned dog food, Try canned Raw Pumpkin. They love it. It's great for their digestive system. And Peter gives them hard stool. And you know as a big dog owner, that's a blessing when you've got a big dog with hard <laughs> stool, especially when you've got to pick it up. But the question I have is on this red flag laws. Let's say a hypothetical. You've got a household with four adults, a husband, wife, and two adult children. All four of them are gun owners. And one person in the household gets red flagged. Now, do the police come in and confiscate every gun in the house? Now you're not only infringing upon one person's constitutional right, but you did it to four people in one crack. This is a slippery slope. What if they decide to enact red flag laws on texting drivers, you know, for the safety of the community? Somebody calls and complains, the next thing the police show up and confiscate your phone. I I mean, this is really a slippery slope we're we're running down here, Peter. And one other thing quick, Ben Carson finally opened up my mind to see the difference between conservatives and Republicans, I mean uh, liberals. When he talked about the center lobe on the dog reactionary and the frontal lobe on people bigger, you know, for logic and reason, Mm -hmm. I think what it is, I think when you're conservative, you have a bigger frontal lobe, you (laughs) use logic and reason more, And some poor people are born with maybe a larger inner lobe, where they live their life reactionary instead of using logic, and that explains it to me. So I don't hate my liberal uh, 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 Americans as bad as I used to. I say to myself with Jesus that forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do.
4: TJ, thanks very much for comment. TJ always has insightful comments and. The issue with respect to red flag laws and just the general presence of guns in the home that may not belong to the alleged red flag person is an intriguing one, and it's one that I don't think that uh, our political class has thought about. They don't think about a whole lot, apparently, anyway. They haven't really thought this through. What happens... When there are guns in the home that belong to somebody else, but you have got somebody who's been red flagged as a potential threat and you don't want them anywhere near or having access to weapons, do you confiscate the weapons of others in the home? What are the Second Amendment infringements uh, in that in that scenario? What are the rights of those individuals and. Before we even get to all that, the whole idea of red flagging, I mean, somebody, uh, as you hear from time to time, what the left likes to say when it comes to the Second Amendment or certain types of weaponry is that, well, you don't need an AR-15 to go hunting or you don't need an AR-15 to protect yourself. And one of my responses to them is it's not a bill of needs. It's a bill of rights. The government does not have the authority to tell me what I can have in terms of what I believe to be our defensive weapons necessary for me to protect me and my family, nor can they tell me what to use when I'm out there hunting. Now, of course, I can't have nuclear weapons. I can't have missiles. We understand all that stuff. But remember, we have a Bill of Rights. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are structured not to give it's not an expression of government authority. It's an expression of our rights. It's a limitation on governmental authority. Democrats and progressives and the media, but I repeat myself, have upended that dynamic. They think that it's a restriction that is the the Constitution, as, as Barack Obama lamented, it's not a prescription of positive rights for the government. Well, you you better be right about that. We fought a revolutionary war to make sure that the people's rights were protected. So remember, it's a bill of rights, not a bill of needs. We're going to go to John in Chardon. John, how are you?
7: Hey, good morning, Peter. Hey, before we get going here, let me ask you a, a couple of questions here. Did, did did you go to Cornell University?
4: I sure did and really besmirched the family's reputation going. So my daughter had to go back there to rehabilitate the family reputation. <laughs> and, and you played football there, right? Well, uh, some people wouldn't necessarily recognize it as football, but I did my best.
7: <laughs> okay. All right. And the other thing is, I I heard you say one time when you're on that you that you work out on a regular basis, three or four times a week.
4: Oh yeah, more than that. I usually try to work out at least six times a week. I'm an old man now; I have to stay in shape. But what I find is, and again, this is not a commercial for working out or anything, but I really do exhort people to try to get some physical exercise because it also improves, at least for me. I'll speak for myself. It improves my cognition, my ability to uh, do my work at a high level. And I just generally like it, and it's a—it's an ego boost. You like to work out and stay in shape. Um, it gives me greater energy, so I can do my household. Uh, I've got a large property, and it requires a lot of upkeep, and it is pretty strenuous. It's like being on—you uh, know—a working farm almost. And then, as you've heard, I've got, uh, and I used to breed a lot of German Shepherds and German Shepherd Husky mixes. They are big and rambunctious dogs, and that takes up a lot of energy. So, yep, I do <laughs> work out. I try to do uh, weight and running. I try to do at least a few miles a day, if not running up a hill, sprints up a hill. And I uh, alternate between lower body and upper body exercises, squats, deadlifts, bench press, you know, the power lifting exercises, but also the little kind of cutesy exercises like curls and military presses.
7: Yeah. Well, I, of course, in Chardon here, I'm friends with the coach, or the football coach, because we served on council at the same time, and he he put me on a program, which is a it's it's it starts out with cardiovascular, and then progresses. It's a progression upward. You're you you're doing more, until uh, the till the final end, and it, it works out well. Uh, anyway, getting around to Trump, uh, I mean, I I love Trump. And what he did for our country while he was president. But the the thing is, I like DeSantis better because he's less controversial. And uh, so, I mean, I think he'd make a great president, DeSantis would.
4: John, do you think that um, Trump would have a greater uphill battle getting elected in the general election than DeSantis would?
7: Yeah, I I tend to think so. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I think what I hear from a lot of people, and again, I'm not making a, a determination one way or another. I think they'd be both be tremendous presidents. Trump's already proven that he would be. Uh and I think DeSantis's right. performance as governor of Florida shows that, you know, he's Trump esque. I mean he doesn't uh you know, he doesn't take any crap from the left uh or the media, but I repeat myself. And uh <laughs> the the question really is, I think yeah, they're, they both, I think, would be really great presidents. I think they'd protect the American ideals that we hold dear. Um, but who can get elected? And we don't want to capitulate to the left or the media, and we don't want them to dictate who our president is or who our nominee is. It is true, however, that Trump has caused them to go ballistic like no one else. DeSantis comes, admittedly, a, a close second, which commends them to us, I think, uh, but I think I've heard from a lot of people the following refrain. I wonder if this applies to you, John. I've heard from a lot of people, and I'm a big Trump fan. You know, I've, I've had opportunity to speak to the man. He's just an amazing individual. Uh, what I've heard from people is that um, they're concerned that uh, Trump is going to have a bigger uphill battle. So what they would do is they would vote for DeSantis in the primaries. But if Trump were to prevail, of course they vote for Trump in the general election. So it's kind of like a a slight preference for Trump, and, and I wonder if that's kind of the same dynamic that applies to you.
7: Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd Roger that. I think if Trump runs, DeSantis will not run. He, DeSantis will not prime primary him. That, that's that's what I think. I think he'll he'll wait for a later later time to make his move.
4: Yeah, I think that might be true. Uh, DeSantis looks like he doesn't shy away from anything, but he's a shrewd individual, and he knows that right now Trump dominates the party. He really does, Uh, and I'd hate to see a scrap between the two. I think one of the things that some of us are afraid of is that if Trump and DeSantis both ran, because they're strong characters, and we know what Trump's character is like, they, w- they might damage one another in the primaries or maybe turn off a certain segment of the electorate, so- such as maybe DeSantis supporters would be turned off and not vote for Trump in the general. I think that's one of the concerns that a lot of conservatives have. We are yeah, We are we're blessed to have... Two individuals like Trump and DeSantis, who are like the anti-GOP establishment. We've been, look, I think many of us supported the, and I don't want to say anything negative about, uh, you know, the Bush family. I was appointed several times by by George W. Bush to various positions. Um, But, you know, there are, I think once we saw the example of Trump, even those of us who necessarily didn't have a big problem with previous Republican presidents looked back and said, wow, how much better we could have done uh, because Trump yeah. stood firm. He wasn't trying to get the approval of our elites or the media, and uh, it was so refreshing to see somebody fight back. But, uh, John, Absolutely. thanks very much for your call. I want to get, as uh, as I said, as many people in as possible. We've got a few more minutes until the bottom of the hour. I want to get B.J. in North Olmsted? B.J., how are you doing? Are you there, sir? I'm,
2: I'm doing well. I'm a 91-year-old young person. I'm a very activist, and and i was born the year after the Great Depression. I saw what happened in that decade, World War II. I was a Korean War vet, a medic. Had quite a history in a lot of things that I've done. If you look up ConnectedTheMovie.com, you'll find that I play the grandfather in that movie. (laughs) So I'm a pretty active person. I did that when I was a kid in my 70s. (laughs) What the reality is is that no human comes into this world unless it comes into this world by the body of a woman. Correct. Wait a minute.
4: What is a woman? Edison's? Do you know what a, oh, woman, a woman is? A woman is. Yes, I do. How She's can you know what? woman is? we have a Supreme Court justice that doesn't Why? know what a woman. How can you add? say that, BJ?
2: Because I know you know I'm right. A woman <laughs> is the giver of life. Is she not?
4: Oh yes, do you have to absolutely. know anything More about her. Well. Me? I'm I'm just saying, B.J., we've got somebody, an exalted brain, sitting on the Supreme Court that cannot tell us what a woman is, despite the fact that this person is going to have to be deciding cases such as Title VII cases in sex discrimination and abortion-related cases that are integral, or the the definition of a woman is integral to these kinds of controversies. But you, B.J., are telling me you know more than the Supreme Court justice.
2: uh, It's not a question of knowing more. It's the optics. This person does believe that. He does believe he can't tell you what a woman is because he's a man. How the hell can he tell you what a period is? How can he tell you what breastfeeding is? How can he tell you what having a baby through your vagina is? He can't. So he doesn't know what a woman is. Only a woman can know what she is. And we have to stop the crap. And more and more, if you become aware, more women are starting to show themselves. They're tired of what the males they produce in this world have become and are doing. So women are starting to assert themselves, and I think it's a good thing. BJ, thank you for your time. Thank
4: you, BJ, and uh, you know, uh, good health to you, BJ, 91 years old. And we're going to the bottom of the hour, short break here. Then we're going to go to Ralph, who's been holding for a long time in Canton. He's going to talk about the issue of the day, Trump versus DeSantis. Who do conservatives vote for in a primary, presuming each of them, meaning Trump and DeSantis, runs? Who is your preference? This is 1420, the Always Right Radio. Pete Kirsten now substituting for Bob France. And we're going to be coming back after the break to Ralph.
0: Lightning the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always right radio with Bob France. The answer.
4: Good morning, Cleveland. This is Pete Kersnow on Always Right Radio, substituting for Bob France. You may recognize me as Bob's regular Tuesday guest. We have been talking to Ben Carson about his new book. And uh, we've been taking calls from listeners. We've got open lines. There are several lines open right now as we speak. And I want to address almost anything that you'd like to talk about. But one of the questions I pose to you is, who do you vote for in a primary? Trump versus DeSantis and why? We've got a couple of callers holding to address that very issue. Ralph's been holding since, I think, about 1912. So we're going to go to Ralph. How are you?
8: Good. How are you doing? Good i got a couple I, I would take trump but one he's been vetted already obviously uh two he's put uh, the majority of the people he's put he's endorsed will have his back uh, uh i don't see him going out and endorse people without him running and he, and trump is the only person that knows how to put this back together he he did it once before he he knows how the dominoes fall and where to go to put the economy back together again uh and three it's a matter of math uh you know, you get uh, three terms instead of two. Uh, and then uh, you run.
4: <laughs> That's really the sign of the apocalypse at that point. Ralph, let me ask you this question. Do you think that Trump as a candidate uh, in, well, it's just only a couple more years now, but do you think the kind of vehement pushback he'd get from Democrats and the media, by? but I repeat myself, lowers the probability that he gets elected.
8: No, he he almost won in the in the uh in a fixed race. He 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 would dominate no matter what in my opinion.
4: Who do you think the democrat nominee would be?
8: I think the only guy that would have a chance is that mansion guy.
4: Yeah, and he's not going to get nominated by the Democrats, that's for sure. I think they despise him almost as much as Trump uh, and uh, DeSantis. But uh, I don't see any strong people out there. But, you know, there was a study about 20 years ago by a couple of uh, liberal professors that showed that when they, they controlled for all other things, when the media favors a particular candidate that was worth five points to that candidate's advantage and that was years ago before the media went completely over the top after trump five points do
0: i do still
8: pay attention to that
4: yeah i do think however that a lot of people in the last say five six years have been appalled by the naked partisanship of the media, and it's pretty clear the media doesn't have the sway they used to. Now, whether or not that uh, appreciably reduces the advantage that Democrats get, because let's face it, instead of being merely biased, now the media is being selective in actually what they show. They will not even show certain things, like the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh it didn't even make the nightly news. Uh, I mean, it was extraordinary. They just suppress it. But um, yeah. I think that the Marshaling of resources against Trump is going to be prodigious. It's going to be like something we've never seen before.
8: Well, plus the rumor is that at CNN they're they're trying to make it uh, uh, fair and balanced.
4: <laughs> yeah, because they've got no listenership or readership or viewership anymore. It's really an amazing thing. You look at their websites. You look at all their radio. They have nobody's listening to them anymore. They have what they I think have have. Uh, forgotten is that not everybody's drinking kool-aid and even the people that want to drink the kool-aid can't drink gallons of it at a time and they recognize that they're not getting any true news from the cnn's you sometimes have to get some unfiltered news in order to operate your life they're not getting that from cnn they're getting propaganda ralph thanks very much for your comments we've got other people on the line let's go to karen in richfield karen are you there
9: how are
4: you i'm doing great Good.
9: I, um, I think Donald Trump was a wonderful president, very efficient, very effective. and But I would be a DeSantis voter for all the reasons you stated. Everyone's going to be so against him and make such a mess out of it. And I wish he would look at it and say, I'm, I've been president. I was terrific. Been there, done that. That's one off the checklist. My, for my next accomplishment, I want to be Speaker of the House, because as Speaker of the House, he would control everything that goes up for a vote, just like she does. And he he doesn't even have to be elected. If he supports enough people and enough of his people get into Congress this November, they can appoint him Speaker of the House. He doesn't have to be a member. It would be perfect.
4: Karen, uh, And he
9: can start make...
4: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
9: I'm just saying they could could appoint him Speaker of the House, and then he could start this November making the changes we need in this country across the board. He can make sure the right bills are introduced into Congress. He can make sure that they are passed by a conservative Congress starting in November. We don't have to wait all this time. If he would just
4: do it. Uh, There have been a number of people, Karen, who have posed the possibility of Trump as Speaker of the House, among other things, it would be just a lot of fun. It would be like going to a carnival to see Trump as Speaker of the House and the left just go absolutely ballistic if that happened. Uh, he, would have, right. he would have a lot of fun, no doubt about that. But more importantly is if we could get a DeSantis as president and Trump as Speaker of the House, now I'm agnostic and a little bit skeptical that Trump would – Let's face it, Speaker of the House is not presidency. I mean, it's it's an extremely important position, but Trump might view that as a demotion. Although, uh, Trump has this kind of um, mischievous side to him that would say, you know, I could have a lot of fun as Speaker of the House. By fun, I mean the kind of fun that benefits the United States of America. Um, The fun that I would like. I mean, look, we need to preserve and protect the greatest constitutional republic in the history of the world, the greatest nation in the history of the world. But that doesn't mean we can't do and have a little bit of fun at the same time. It would be entertaining beyond belief to have Trump as Speaker of the House and DeSantis as President. It's at least one of those things you'd like to fantasize about for a while. Um, but in terms of who, you th- who you'd prefer to have President, all things being equal, let's say that they have an equal chance of being elected. That is the opposition to them is going to be about the same. Would you prefer DeSantis or Trump as president? DeSantis. And why?
9: Because I I just don't think that they will um, marshal and they have to start over. They've already got everything assembled to attack Trump. They already have the the, the Trump never Trumpers, the Trump haters that they would have to completely start over building the opposition to DeSantis. I'm not saying that they wouldn't try. Of course they would. But it's a, a much bigger job to build that network of hate against DeSantis. They've already got it all done for Donald Trump and can just build on it.
4: Yeah, and I think that um, I, I tend to agree with that. I think that Trump's demeanor and approach, although DeSantis is combative. Trump is combative on steroids, and he tends to elicit the kind of almost unhinged opposition that you don't see with respect to any other Republican candidate, even including DeSantis, although I think DeSantis, as I said, he's giving them a run for their money. He seems to be uh, less rough around the edges than Donald Trump is, but again, that's one of the attractions to donald trump for a lot of people that he is rough around the edges we don't like the fact that we've had so many republican office holders who want to play nice they don't realize that you know the old thing about uh, you know sean connery and Untouchables, saying you know you gotta you, you know you don't bring a knife to a gunfight and trump usually brings howitzers he understands the opposition and he doesn't want to necessarily be equal to them he wants to obliterate them he understands that we've got a country to to save but uh, karen thanks very much for the call Let's go next to Charlie. Charlie, you there?
2: Hey, Peter. Yeah, thanks for taking the call. Uh, My subject, a couple of weeks ago when the shooting at Uvalde happened, you came on and you said, hey, Bob, this is one of the reasons why I work out is so that I can rush in and save my kids. And you know your stock went way up in my mind when you said that. I go, you know, that's the truth. And I had, kind of had an old argument with Bob. I said, you know, those cops, it was their duty to go right in, no matter what, maybe risk their lives. And Bob was absolutely adamantly against it, saying, no, you're wrong, Charlie. They should not have gone in. They had to stay back. You would have got more cops killed. And there's two schools of thought. And I and I just, I'm on your side. You've you got to rush in. I just well, wanted to see, say that to you.
4: Yeah, well, thanks, Charlie. I, I think there's a couple of different approaches to this, You know, I said that as a parent, and I think I probably expressed the sentiment for lots of parents in the United States that when your kid's in there, you're not waiting for cops. Yeah, cops are a line of protection for you, but when it comes to your family, you are the first line of protection. I'm not waiting for anybody. No one is going to prevent me from getting into that school. They're going to have to draw their weapons to try to stop me. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I know that at least one woman did just that. Um, With respect to the police... You know, that Bob and I are, are big fans and defenders of the police. And that look, there are bad cops, there are bad police departments because of poor leadership. But in the main, the cops are doing one of the most important, if not the most important jobs and most difficult jobs. And it's reprehensible that they get spat upon the way they do by this administration and leftists in general. Having said that, that doesn't mean that they're infallible. And I think that my own personal belief, again, I'm not a tactician, I'm not there on the ground, but just based on the information that I saw um, i gotta say i was uh, appalled by the lack of response the fact that this was going on for nearly an hour and they sat on the perimeter and didn't do anything and uh you know I, I get the the chain of command and that there are guys who you know they're waiting for leadership to give them the authority or give them direction uh at some point i think as americans We follow directives from leadership. We follow the chain of demands. But when you've got kids being shot, and we knew this at the time, and you're waiting all that time, my own personal view, this is an uninformed, unprofessional view, is you go in there, guns blasting. It's like Cisco Kid. Uh, You protect those kids, and authority be damned, and I'll take my consequences. Okay, it's easy for me to say as a Monday morning quarterback here, I'm not there, you know, I wasn't there on the ground but my sense is that many of you listening in this audience would have the same reaction. Kids, even if they're not your own, kids are in there in peril. You know they're being shot at, and it's all hands on deck, and you massively swarm that place and take that shooter down. Uh, Charlie, thanks very much for your call. Let's next go to, I think we have Sally in Berea on Trump versus DeSantis. Sally, are you there?
10: Hi, It's a pleasure to speak with you. Enjoy all your, um, all your, um, uh, meetings with Bob and pleased that you can stand in today for him. I hope he's well. We, I really, uh, really want to stand up for Trump and see him vindicated and, and support him. But the only reason I would favor DeSantis is because I think he could unite a greater populist um, with independence independents and and maybe some of the anti-Trumpers, and so I think he might have a better chance. But I really would like it if if Trump could uh, over if Trump could prevail.
4: Yeah, I think that's a Sally. I think your sentiment is is probably the majority sentiment among conservatives. Everybody loves Trump. They understand that, and they want to see him vindicated, too. All the lies have been told about him, but they also think that he's the man for the moment, that only somebody with his strength could actually pull us from the abyss into which the progressives have thrown us. Uh, At the same time, a lot of people have some trepidation. They know that we cannot lose in 2024 if we're going to preserve the United States of America. Otherwise, we may descend too too much further into the abyss, and we can't. Pull it back. So, we want to take the best opportunity that is, who has the best opportunity of prevailing and still be Trumpian. And DeSantis has emerged as that possible alternative. Um, I don't think that we would be ill served if we had either Trump or DeSantis. Personally, yes, there'd be satisfaction in seeing Trump vindicated, seeing the left go absolutely crazy if he were reelected. Having said that, I want to make sure that we have a conservative in office in 2024, and if that means we have to have DeSantis, look, there's no downside to DeSantis as far as I'm concerned. So Sally, thanks very much for your call. We only have a few minutes left, and we've got some callers holding. I want to go to Cheryl in Lakewood. Cheryl, are you there?
11: Yeah, good morning. Um, Anyone who doesn't, first of all, I love both Trump and DeSantis. I worked very hard for Trump when he was in office worked very hard to get him elected, Uh, love everything DeSantis is doing in Florida. Let me just say this. Anybody who thinks that, um, that there will not be the same kind of targeted attack against DeSantis as we've seen over the past few years against Trump is simply not paying attention. We are living through a socialist coup. That is what is going on. And they will pull out every single weapon in their arsenal to go against anyone that tries to stop that coup and that's just all there is to it and they may have more ammunition to use against Trump but if you don't think they'll pull out everything they have to go against DeSantis to stop him and anyone else who wants to get in their way is simply anybody who believes that is simply being naive
4: Cheryl, you're right about that. We've seen that forever where the left and the progressives, but I repeat myself, try to anoint the conservative, the acceptable conservative candidate, and they say nice things about them until such time as it's time to pull out the knives. And they're going to do so probably with similar vigor because they do see DeSantis as maybe a little bit more slicker or smoother Donald Trump, but they're going to come after him just as vigorously. The thing is they don't have the ammunition already prepared yet because they already have four. Look at what happened with the January 6th committee. This is all about preventing Trump again. They've been developing the ammunition with which to attack Trump should he run again. But they're going to use that kind of approach with anybody. Remember what they did with George W. Bush. I mean, they'll try to rehabilitate George W. Bush after the fact. Okay, that's what they always do. But at the time, remember how they just trashed the heck out of him. Trump is, is Bush you know, uh, to a multiple of 25, and DeSantis remains to be seen, but he looks to be a slightly more polished type of Donald Trump. Do we want polished, though, or do we want the real film, the real deal? Um, we are coming to the top of the hour. We still have callers holding. We will have a guest, Gail Harriet, talking about affirmative action at the top of the hour, but after that, after the top of the hour, and maybe about 11.20 or so, we will be open line again, so John, if you want to hold or call back, others, if you want to call back, open lines after approximately 11.20. Our next guest will be Gail Harriet. This is Pete now on Always Right, substituting for Bob France.
0: Life. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France. And the answer.
4: Good morning, Cleveland. Home of the smartest, fastest, strongest, toughest, and best looking people in America. You're listening to Always Right. Pete now substituting for Bob France, and frankly, good morning to everybody in the great Midwest, but I concentrate on Cleveland because, let's face it, we are the best, smartest, fastest, strongest, toughest in all of America. We were very fortunate to have Ben Carson, again, talking about smart, one of the smartest people in the world. We're going to have a surfeit of brain power here. After talking to Ben Carson about his book on Created Equal, uh, we're going to shift to something that is almost uh, on the same subject matter and with my colleague on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, Gail Harriet, and Professor Harriet at the University of San Diego Law School has been a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, sometimes battling the left in a lonely fashion with me for the last 15 years. And Gail's a graduate of Northwestern and University of Chicago Law School. She was on the Law Review there. She's been assistant dean of George Mason. She's a prolific writer. In fact, she has an anthology. She has a book called A Dubious Expediency, currently out, that we're going to be talking about. We'll also get contact information and purchasing information in the process of this. But this is a great segue from Dr. Ben Carson's book, uh, to discuss some of the most pressing issues today. And this one is what's going on in academia, principally at the higher educational levels with respect to racial preferences and a whole host of it. It's not just in admissions. Racial preferences are pervading academia right now to the detriment, I think, of our kids. And by kids, I mean everything from kindergarten through graduate school. But the kind of preferences that we've been talking about with uh, Dr. Carson, I think are going to, they're already manifesting themselves as having deleterious effects on an educational establishment. Gail has this book out, and I want to welcome her today. We're going to be discussing it. And again, after we're finished with this, we will stab some time for your lines. I see people are still holding, and we will get to your calls at some point. But, Gail, are you there? I sure am, Pete. Great, good to hear from you. I know you're out on the west coast. Coast, it's uh, early duty for you, but uh, you know, as our friend Larry Elder likes to say, you know, we've got a we've got a country to save here. So let's talk about your book, A Dubious Expediency. It's a collection of essays from a lot of people that our audience would recognize right away. You know, Heather McDonald. I mean, just it's it's a a who's who of the conservative educational establishment. Uh, those who have written in the past about education, the deleterious effects on education of preferences. But what 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 prompted you to put this book together?
10: Well, you know, there are a lot of people that really haven't seen the arguments laid out carefully about why race preferences have been, been harmful to higher education. And I, I don't just mean to, to students who therefore think, you know, gosh, I didn't get into the college that I wanted to get into because I, uh, my race was held against me. Uh, but there are much more harmful effects. Uh, And I thought it was necessary to lay them out one by one so that that, that people could could read about this and understand it, because this is an important issue.
4: And and so when going through this, obviously I I contributed in my uh, pathetic fashion, one of the essays here, but you've got some real heavyweights here, like Heather John Ellis, Peter Wood, of course, of the National Association of Scholars. Um, If you could pick one essay that you think, if people didn't have time a whole lot of time to read through all of them, and they should because it's not necessarily, you know, it's not a, a huge book, but the essays individually are powerful, ranging from just a few pace pages. They give you the intellectual ammunition you need to make the argument with respect to your progressive friends or with respect to your students' colleges, grad schools, or even K-12 through as to why it is that race preferences don't work. Which essay do you think, if, if any, again, I know they're all great, but if you were to say, Focus on this to begin your your analysis. Which one would that be?
10: Oh, man. I mean, that's really really hard, Pete. I mean, there are a lot of important essays here, but just because I'm talking to you right now, let's... Talk about your essay, uh, segregation now, because I think that's a hugely important essay. It talks about how contrary to, to, to the purpose uh, of affirmative action preferences, the idea here is we want to have you know more more you know encounters between peoples of different races. We want you know diversity to to teach people something. What really happens? What really happens on campus um, is that as a result of race preferences, you get a tendency um, for groups to want to separate themselves. Um, and, you know, you're the expert on that, Pete, and I think it's a splendid essay, and I think that all your listeners uh, should want to read that essay.
4: I was hoping you'd say that, Gail. <laughs> but in anything, <laughs> yes. Um, the yes. The, the essay that I have is based on, among other things, my experience when I was in school at uh, Cornell back in the Mesozoic era. But it's something that has, I think, metastasized so that I think all of our listeners have experienced it, either themselves, their kids, or even their grandkids, where K-12, through but especially at the collegiate level, we are seeing what we call resegregation. That is, you've got separate dorm rooms. You've got even separate classes. And a lot of these things that they're doing, they're not just simply flirting at the perimeter of the law. They are wholesale violating the law. I mean, you can. Brown versus Board of Education, Title VI, 14th Amendment none of these things were repealed while you were asleep. These things are already and remain in existence. But nonetheless, especially what I've seen, Gail, and maybe you've seen the same thing when we've been on the Civil Rights Commission, but I've seen, especially after uh, the George Floyd incident, there seems to be this license that people in authority seem to have. That it is permissible now to discriminate in one direction, and it's caused the expansion of segregated dorms, themes, classes on campuses. And uh, strangely enough, um, you and I have an amicus brief before the Supreme Court in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, of course. My audience should know that uh, I'm not smart enough to write the brief. The brief, the heavy lifting on this thing was by Gail, and we're fortunate to have her intellect in, on our side in this regard. But the point is that, as we know, and I'll let Gail expound upon this, there are certain predicates to being permitted as a, an institution of higher learning to discriminate on the basis of race. And that's what's happening in admissions, discrimination on the basis of race. And it's going on at Harvard. One of the predicates to the Supreme Court decision that came out in Grutter and and the correlative of Graz. But Grutter said that you can discriminate if it's to forward the educational, the purported educational benefits derived from a diverse student body. But, of course, the anomaly here or the strange thing here is if you are segregating on campus, how are you going to get those benefits? Gail, could you kind of expand on that? Well, yeah, well,
10: that's just the point here. You know, if you read the Supreme Court decision – uh, and the Supreme Court decision, you know, is, is, you know, I, I think it's wrong that they, they never should have gone down this road. We have a pretty firm rule against race discrimination. Um, but when they tell us it has to be for the sake of, of, of capturing the pedagogical benefits of diversity. So the educational benefits. And, you know, the idea here is, is that. Those benefits go to everybody, and therefore, it's okay to engage in race discrimination. Uh, But in fact, if you look what happens on campuses, you get separate student lounges, you get separate graduation ceremonies, separate dormitories, all of these things are really contrary uh, to what the Supreme Court said was their tiny exception uh to the otherwise very firm rule against race discrimination. Well, it means that that you know that small exception has in fact you know been been open made wide open because there's no longer any limit to it. Uh there's really no need for schools um, to be proving um, that they are reaping any educational benefits of diversity. It's pretty clear that they're not. Um, and you know if you look at the Supreme Court decision um it, it's 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 it, it attempts to be very narrow uh but it ends up not being schools don't pay any attention to it. You know, they engage in, 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 in segregation on campus. Uh, they say that, you know, we're doing this for the pedagogical benefits uh, of diversity. It's look closely at what's driving them. It's not, you know, it's not pedagogical benefits of diversity, uh, which sounds very highfalutin. What in fact it often is, is state legislatures are, are, are telling them they have to have more race diversity. Uh, accrediting agencies are telling them they have to do it. Students are protesting. Um, alumni are complaining. Um, and all that is really what's, what's driving a lot of this. And, you know, one of the other essays in the book that I think is important is actually my essay. Um, because it talks about some empirical evidence, some, some scientific evidence, um, that students who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of race preferences, that is, African-American students, to a certain extent Latino students, American Indian students, um, they're often actually worse off um, as a result of these preferences. And let me, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when you admit somebody to a school where their academic credentials um, are not on par with the other students um, that that tends to mean that students that get in on that basis. Are going to get grades towards the lower end of the class. I mean, that's that's just the way it is. Uh, I don't mean to say they're poor students. They they might not be. You know, the, somebody gets a preference into a school like MIT or Caltech. Every student that goes to that school is a rocket scientist pretty much. Uh, but if you have a preference if you're getting preferential treatment, you know, some students are going to outperform their entering credentials. Some students are going to underperform theirs. But most students are going to perform in the general range their academic credentials said they would perform. And that's true whether they got preferential treatment on account of their race, on account of their athletic uh, skills, on account of the fact that, you know, daddy and mommy are really influential and, and, and can, you know, they have a lot of clout. No matter what it is, those students on average are going to perform towards the bottom of the class. And unfortunately... What that means uh, is that they're actually less likely uh, to do something like emerge from that school with a degree in science or engineering, go on to medical school, go on to any kind of graduate school. Students that have grades that are below average uh, tend to do uh, tend to be less less likely to go on to a, a high status career, less likely than what they would have done had they gone to a school where their academic credentials put them in the ballpark uh, to compete with other students. Uh, so that's the key here. You have students that are going to MIT who would have done splendidly at a school just a little bit lower in the pecking order, would have come out, you know, gone to medical school, become a, gotten a Ph.D. In, in physics, you know, whatever it is, um, and they would have actually had better careers had they gone to a school where they hadn't gotten a preference. Where they were right there in the middle with the rest of the students uh, and that's that's hugely important right. um, and you know we we're in a world now where 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 most african American students are going to schools where they got got a preference, and that means they are less likely to be um as 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 successful in their adult lives as they would otherwise be, and that 's a real tragedy
4: it is, and what it does is reinforced stereotypes. So you've got somebody who, they could, as you indicated, they could compete at a number of fine schools, but they're always pushed to a level, one level above or two levels above, where their competencies lie. And so they struggle, as you indicated, at these other schools, and white and Asian students are looking at them and saying, well, you know, these guys aren't competing. It reinforces stereotypes. It perpetuates the kind of animosities that we see. Or we're trying to eliminate and hoping to eliminate uh, but it's doing just the opposite. And more importantly is those individual students who get that preference. Okay, maybe they get to go to a fine establishment, but when they get out, they are less likely to be competitive. And they're as opposed to, as we've seen, Gail, and, and you can talk about this if you wish, but we've had hearings at the Civil Rights Commission about how, at least in STEM, a science, technology, engineering, math, um, black students that go to HBCUs, typically stick with that major because they are in an environment where they can compete and they don't become frustrated, as opposed to if they go to the MITs, where, okay, they they may be able to survive, but they're at a much more um, competitive environment and they get a little bit more frustrated. Maybe they drop out or maybe they change their majors.
10: Exactly. I mean, the the evidence is the strongest area of STEM. uh, The science, technology, engineering, and math students Um, you know, what happens is a lot of students start college and they they think, I'm going to be a STEM major. And, you know, it's one of those areas where people tend to drop out because it's tough. The competition is very, very tough. But what happens um, is that affirmative action beneficiaries drop out at much higher rates. Um, And it's interesting to see how well Uh, the historically black colleges and universities do here. Uh, Students that go to those schools are much more likely to to persevere uh, in their quest for a STEM degree, Uh, go on to graduate school, uh, maybe at a mainstream university, um, maybe not, and to actually, you know, achieve their dream of being a scientist, of being an engineer, uh, whereas if they go to a school where they they received a preference, and again, it's not a question just of race, it's anything that might get you a preference. You know, if you're a rich kid with with, with a parent that has a lot of clout, right. you know, it is not a great idea to take advantage of that and go to a school where you're likely to be, be you know, out-competed um, academically academically. Um, At MIT, you know, sometimes students who get a preference end up majoring in something other than what MIT is all about. I mean, the whole reason we have schools like MIT is that this is for for students who are are gifted um, in science and math and engineering. um, And they end up not majoring um, in science, math, or engineering, which is a tragedy. You know, we need more STEM talent out there. There are great jobs out there in the area of STEM. That doesn't mean you have to be a STEM major. Uh, I wasn't and and I didn't want to be. Um, But that is the dream of so many students. And when they get a preference, that dream tends to end up not being fulfilled.
4: Right. And look, we live in a competitive world. China's producing tens of thousands of STEM majors and engineers and we're not uh, keeping up with them. And this is a dynam- dynamic that's not going to increase our numbers. If we're getting people who are more likely to be flunking out of these, these uh, places as opposed to remaining in that major if they were in a competitive environment. Gail, we're going to be going to a break uh, shortly. What I want to do is talk a little bit about SFFA versus Harvard, if you've got the time to do that. We're talking to Gail Harriet, Professor Gail Harriet who has an anthology book here, A Dubious Expediency. Gail, where can people get a copy of this? Because I know a number of the listeners are interested in this. We've talked about it before. Where can they get A Dubious Expediency?
10: It's easy. Just just go on the Amazon website or the, the Barnes & Noble website. Available in both places.
4: Good. Excellent. And with respect to SS, SFFA versus Harvard, I want to talk a little bit about the Amicus brief that you wrote and that we filed in Supreme Court on that case. This is the case that everyone hopes will finally put the nail in the coffin of Grutter and Gratz and, and its progeny, Fisher, et cetera, with respect to the permission by the judicial system emanating all the way back from Baki to engage in racial discrimination in higher admissions. We're talking to Gail Harriet. This is the Bob. France always right show There we go Son of a gun Pete Kirson out here We'll be coming back after the break John, Tom and others hold on, we'll get to you get away
5: again tonight the only one who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man The yes, only one who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man is hero He was.
0: Delivering you from the depravity of the radical left. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer.
4: Good morning Cleveland. This is Pete Krishnal substituting for Bob France. We've got on the line my colleague on the Civil Rights Commission Professor Gail Harriet. And, Gail, uh, thanks for holding on. We're talking about her book, A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. Gail, I know that you got up early for this. I only have one more question for you. Keep you on the line for just a couple more minutes. And that last question has to do with, how do you think the current case pending before the Supreme Court, which is Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, a group of Asian-American students who brought a lawsuit against Harvard's racially discriminatory admissions practices. What do you think the Supreme Court may do with that case?
10: <laughs> well, and I am the wrong person to ask that question to. I am very optimistic that it will find that race preferences are unconstitutional and or illegal under Title VI title of, of, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But I thought in 2003 that that's what the Supreme Court was going to do in Grutter versus Bollinger, right. and boy, was I wrong. Um, so you don't wanna go with necessarily with optimistic gale. Um but you know, I am thinking that we have a really good chance at this. Uh, that we have a very you know conservative Supreme Court, and I think one that takes equal protection seriously. One that takes takes um, the notion that race discrimination is such uh, a a a a tragedy, a, a, a horrible thing that you need very 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 strong rules against it, and they take seriously. I think strict scrutiny, which is the the, the usual legal standard that applies to a constitutional issue, that if, if a government is engaging in race discrimination, that needs to be strictly scrutinized by a court. Only in extraordinary situations uh, will that be upheld. And I believe they will find that this is not such an extraordinary situation, that this is pretty much, you know, this is this is just ordinary race discrimination. It happens to run against Asians and whites. Um, but next time it may run against different groups and they need to uphold a very, very strict rule. Um, But as I said, look, um, in 2003, uh, I was pretty confident that the court would would come down strongly against race discrimination. And in a 5-4 decision, um, they came down just as squishy as they could be.
4: Right. And as uh, Justice O'Connor said in Dicta, Uh, She believed that maybe after 25 years, 2003, in 25 years, we wouldn't need race preferences anymore. But we're only a few years away from that, and they are just as powerful as ever. It seems like they've pervaded so much of not just academia, but we have seen – this metastasize into overt discrimination, especially after COVID. It seems like the government's out there dispensing benefits on the basis of race, funds on the basis of race. It's truly an extraordinary thing. We've got to put this genie back in the bottle because it's just doing extraordinary damage to the United States of America. Professor Gail Harriet, the book is A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. Gail, thanks so much for getting uh, up early out there on the West Coast. Everybody go out and buy the book. John and Tom, hold on. We'll be getting to you in a moment. Gail, we'll be talking to you later. Take care.
10: Great, thanks, Pete. Bye, bye.
4: So, um, I do think I, I agree with Gail. Um, in our Amicus brief, we argue uh, just the deleterious effects of racial preferences that it, that metastasizes beyond education. You see it everywhere now, and it's there's no proof it's doing anybody any good. And I think we're at each other's throats from a racial perspective, like we haven't been in in decades, in a large part fueled by critical race theory and this counting on the basis of race. We've got about uh, only about six or seven minutes left yet, so I want to go to John. John, uh, in Chardon, uh, you're back again talking about Uvalde.
7: Yeah, right. <laughs> now, there's a comparison here, because here in Chardon, we had a similar situation which occurred. We had three uh, high school students that were murdered, and one's in a permanently in a wheel- wheelchair. And the difference is, when it happened, what we did, what our police did, the first thing they uh, did was grab their Kevlar bulletproof vests, and then went went to the scene, and then they were able to move immediately in, in, against this kid that was that was shooting people.
4: Yeah, you know, I again going back to this, I, I, I hate second guessing. Cops, when you are in a tense situation like this, you have to make split-second decisions, and I don't have the guts that they do. So I hate to do that, and, and I think cops have got the toughest job in the world, and unfortunately our political class is making their job even more difficult. And again, second-guessing is, is a nice game when you compare, uh, uh, you know, play it from the safety of your armchair. Having said that, though, we are right to an opinion. and What I saw there was appalling. And uh, I tend to agree with a number of parents who said, if that's my my kid in there, you're going to have to just dismember me like uh, the knight in uh, Monty Python to prevent me from going in there and protecting my kids or my grandkids. I will move heaven and earth and you better stay out of my way. But more importantly is what kind of a society is it that has been generating these kinds of monsters who will do this stuff? okay we talk about gun control gun control gun control there are hundreds of millions of guns out there no matter what you do with respect to gun control outright of out even if you try outright confiscation guns are going to be prevalent what we've seen is a decadent society that's producing these monsters more and more often. It's just a sick society in many regards, and we're not looking at that. We're, not, we're doing everything we can to make the society even sicker. That's me pontificating for the moment. I want to go to Tom in South Russell, who's been holding for, I think, since the Mesozoic era.
3: Tom, you I there? Am. Yes, I am. Thank you. Go ahead, uh, Tom. Mike. My question, uh, Mr. Kirsten, I would be, do you think that the uh, uh, election uh, was stolen from President Trump? And uh, whatever you think about that, how do you explain the statements made by the former Attorney General Barr and, he, and Ivanka Trump uh, about uh, her own father, uh, about his being removed from, uh, at least Barr said he was removed from reality, etc.?
4: I don't, you know, I didn't watch... Uh, January sixth committee hearings. I thought they were farce. I saw some excerpts of them, so I don't know specific. I hate to address things. I'm not trying to avoid the question, but as a lawyer, I want to read everything and or hear everything that somebody says before I comment about it. But having said that, uh, because I am very often very reckless, I don't mind opining about all manner of things. One of the things <laughs> that um, uh, concerns me is that I, I think. That you asked, you know, was the election stolen? The I think uh, there's a preliminary question to that, and that is, uh, do you know whether or not the ele- the election was fair? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know if it was stolen, I don't know if it was fair, but that is the question. If you don't know, if you can't be confident about the integrity of the election, the entire institution, the entire structure of our government begins to erode because you have to have that confidence from the populace in our institutions. And that's why I think we're seeing so much of the lunacy that we're seeing. I know this much. There are a lot of very credible questions that need to be posed about what was going on in 2020. So many questions, it's not just 2,000 mules and that uh, video, but so much that just didn't make sense. Was it stolen? Don't know, but we better investigate it, especially when, for the last Five years, the same people who say Trump is denying, you know, the outcome of the election were denying it vehemently and came up with the completely and utterly fraudulent Russia hoax, the greatest political scandal in American history. But nope, on our side, nobody can even raise a question. Pete Kersenow sitting in for Bob France on Always Right. God bless you, Cleveland.